tonight, I want to wrap up the questions that have been lingering uh, that we haven't yet answered and kind of cap it off a little bit. And there's some loose ends that we're not going to tie up. And I'm going to mention a couple of them as we go along because I think there's been some good call-outs, but this series would last forever if we tried to go after all of them. Let me go back a little bit. You guys know all the questions that we've been covering. I'm not going to read them all. I'm just going to remind you of some of them. They're on the screen. These are all the questions that we've been walking through week after week in this series. And last week, we kind of stopped here. How do I distinguish between God's voice and my own? We've been kind of wrestling with that for a couple of weeks. I have a couple of closing comments on that to make. Uh, But tonight, I want to talk about the rest of the questions that were on the cards that you gave us that we haven't really addressed. I'm going to try to get through most of them tonight. So hopefully these won't be controversial because I'm going to try to get through like 13 or 14 questions so that we can kind of just walk through them. A couple closing comments from the talking to God part. We've been tripping up over this question. And remember, somebody in this group asked the question. I didn't word it. So we've been trying to answer it. Is prayer supposed to be relational? And last week I said, yes, at our heart, what we would really hope for the most is that we would have a relational God, that prayer is not supposed to be a one-way dialogue, and it would be part of a relationship. That's our hope. So the answer, I think, is to say prayer is certainly a key part of a relationship. It's our birthright, by the way. It's not always meant to be a one-way dialogue. And the reason I put the word always in there is because for a lot of time, we will experience prayer as a dialogue where we're doing most of the speaking and the petitioning and the praising and whatever it is we're doing to God. And I like that there's been some pushback in the room that you should not define prayer to include every single time I speak, God will speak back. In fact, we've been saying just the opposite. It may be very rare that we hear from God in many of the ways that he speaks. Where do I get this idea of a birthright, by the way? I I think it's important that we recognize this, because since we're wrapping up tonight, I think we should remember some of the more spiritual aspects of prayer. Romans 8, 14, and 16. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry... Abba, Father. By whom? The Spirit. It's by the Spirit that we're allowed to cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This is not a small point. The fact that the Holy Spirit resides in us, the fact that we have been born as sons and daughters of God is what gives us the very right to even speak to him. And it's part of our birthright to be able to call him in this intimate way, Abba, Father. We also have that same kind of concept in Galatians. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. I don't think that we should ignore that it's not a small thing that we get to have this conversation with God or even to speak to him. To approach the throne of grace, as Hebrews says. That's one of our rights. Here's something else we've been tripping up over the last couple of weeks. The related question, which is, is prayer supposed to be a dialogue, as in me speaking to God and God speaking to me? Wow, we keep tripping up over this because that's the thing I think that we want to know about. Here's my concluding comments about it, and I know we've had some pushback on them. Here's what my capping off of. I don't want to discredit anyone's statements. I'm just saying this is what my opinion is. Let's state it that way. 
Number one, you may not experience God constantly speaking to you, audibly or otherwise. But you should still remain expectant. I think we would lose the whole essence of prayer, or at least a big part of it, if we just shut off our ears and just said, you know what, it is just going to be me speaking. I don't expect anything back. So I I do agree that we're not going to experience God constantly speaking to us. But I want to remain open and expectant of things we don't even understand. Second, prayer is not limited to the time we speak to God. I do believe that prayer is a lifestyle. It's intentionally lived in the presence of God. We've had some discussion about that. Like, well, where do you get that from? Last week, actually, afterwards, Jeremy and I had a discussion about the idea of theology itself. There are a lot of things that you can't point to a single verse and say, you see, here's the verse that says that you should do this. Rather, we develop a belief by trying to figure out how do we live our life. That's one way. By looking at how do we harmonize certain things together, we start to develop a belief. And what I'm encouraging you to do is develop a theology of prayer that isn't just about you talking or just you waiting for just an answer. But people who have practiced living in the presence of Christ for a long, long time have written about their experience and about how much closer they've come to God. And i got to tell you, I trust those people because they've done it for a long time. And most of us, including myself, haven't. That's the richness of the tradition of a lot of people who spent a lot of time in prayer and trying to make prayer a lifestyle. And they all seem to report one thing. You get much closer to God that way, and it seems like you're more in tune with him. I have to trust that. Third, I don't want to lose this point because maybe in our discussion we may have lost it. God's primary way of communicating is still his word. The other instances like speaking to us, maybe through our thoughts and prompting us through the spirit, that does happen. And then even more rare would be things like him speaking audibly in visions. Two verses real quick for you about the spirit speaking to us. John 16, 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. That's Jesus promising us the Holy Spirit. Apparently, part of the Spirit's role in living inside of us is to speak. He says it again in John 15, 26, When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Okay, Testifying is also another way of saying that he's speaking about God. Sure, that could, you could read it as he's just going to bear witness to me, but in some way, part of the Spirit's role inside of us is to speak. So I think that kind of is what I'd like to summarize our discussion about, to say we should remain open, we should remain expectant. It's possible that you should expand your view of prayer into seeing living life in front of God all the time, and maybe that's one of the ways that he begins to communicate back to us is not just in the moments that we're praying. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that when we were given the Holy Spirit, that that should have been the primary way that God communicates with us. But after we invented the printing press and there's widespread literacy now, like I feel like we've kind of stepped in and replaced the Holy Spirit with the Bible. Well, I think that it's true that we have the word more in our hands now. And maybe we've begun to favor it only because it's, it's more available. But I also think that from the beginning, that seems to be the primary way that we're supposed to hear God's voice. In fact, I could ask it the other way. Like, what's wrong with what we have in Scripture? David's Psalms repeated that he would meditate on the word of the Lord, that he would would hold it dear in his heart. 
and that Paul exhorts people to read Scripture, which, of course, at his time meant the entire Old Testament. Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. And so you have all these people that are exhorting us to keep God's Word in our minds. There are less verses that talk about that we should be hearing from God or that we should be meditating on Him talking to us audibly. This, this puts me in a weird spot because I've been talking about how God could speak to us and how the Spirit might testify to us and how the Spirit might prompt certain thoughts in us. And that's in talking about having this communication with God that's like outside the Bible, right? But the reason I brought up that other comment before about let's remember that that's still the primary way that God will speak to his people is because in our churches, and maybe not in this room, but in our churches, people tend to overemphasize the need to hear from God directly on every point. And the natural question would be, well, what's wrong with what's in the Bible? It's so much more robust and so much more complete. Why isn't that good enough for us? But I also think that there are places where you can't stick just to the Bible. That's what's gotten us in trouble in the last couple of weeks is we've wanted a verse about every single thing. And if it's not there, we've ditched it. And that means that our relationship with God ends up being nothing but just here, read this book. But God is alive and so are we. And it's meant to be a relationship like we're sons and daughters of God. I don't think that if we wanted to have a relationship with our father or mother on this earth, they would say, well, here's a book that I wrote, like, read about me. All right, let me press on with some other questions. Is there anything biblical about praying in a group? It seems like Jesus was always almost in solitude all the time when he was praying. Good question. I think there is something biblical about praying in a group. Acts 2.42 says that the early church from the very beginning met together in prayer and for breaking of bread, and for spending time with the apostles' teachings. It seems that community prayer was part of the early church from the very beginning. Okay, that's to answer the question the way it was phrased. Is there something biblical? Now let's ask it a different way. Is there something that's at all good about it? Like, what's the purpose? You know, so like when I stand up here and say a prayer, you guys are all closing your eyes thinking about where we're going to eat. Is there anything beneficial to that at all? You know, I think there is. I think there is something beneficial. It's true that it's hard to pray honestly, as we had this discussion a couple weeks ago. It's very hard to pray honestly and from the heart in public. It's hard to do that in front of people. But there are some things that come out of it. I think it unifies us. I think it edifies our body together. I think there are moments when people in here don't want to pray or can't pray or are not in a place where they can pray. And when we pray together, whether it's just two people or five people or a whole group of people or even in a church... Just the fact that somebody is praying over the body is good because there may be people who are just not there in that place. Plus, there's a diversity in the way that we pray. There's a diversity in the way we express prayer to God. You may even hear prayers that you haven't even thought to pray or were conscious of praying and think, okay, that's good. Of course, God already knows everything you need before you pray it. But if you're going to use that reason not to have group prayer, then you should use that reason not to have any prayer. So I think that there's probably some good benefit that comes out. Yeah. Where this question comes out, at least for me, is growing up in a mega church, you know, like the standard pat prayer that the guy's already written like the week before, you know, and it's been approved by the pastor, you know. Like it, not that that's not genuine, but is that like really necessary? There's so much peer pressure, right, when you're praying in front of people to say the right words. Like, you don't want to say the wrong thing. Like, oh, God, our adversary, I, I mean, our advocate, or like, you know, like, you just, like, you just, like, to say the wrong thing, you know, like, to, to you know, and then everybody's like, eh, eh, you know, like, and you're just thinking, like, oh, no, like, if I pray theologically incorrect prayers in front of other people, like, you know, that there is that. So that's one downside and why we end up saying these repetitive words or we kind of throw, even if we're not reading off a teleprompter, 
we're kind of stringing together phrases that we know have passed muster and received the good seal of approval from the local church or whatever it is so that we're not going to say something doctrinally in error that everybody in the prayer goes all at the same time, right? Okay. So I think that's definitely true about prayer uh, in group prayers. That's one of the problems with it. The other problem with I'll point out, of course, is that there are people who have started to point us out in churches that one of our bad habits, and I kind of poked fun at it, in one of our earlier sessions, is that people tend to preach through their prayer. You know, like, oh, God, please this week, may we read chapter two of the book for Wednesday night and be prepared to discuss it. Like, that's not a prayer. If your audience is not God, then it's not really a prayer, all right? It may be just extended sermon time under the guise of prayer, right? So in some churches, as you know, in liturgical tradition, when the pastor or the priest prays, out loud, they actually turn around and they pray this way on behalf of everybody with them. Not that they're praying over you, but that they're like leading the prayer to God who deserves the prayer. And they'll actually turn their back to the congregation or the parish or whatever is sitting there. That's actually the attitude we should have in our heart either way when we're praying as a group. God is still the person who we're addressing. And just everybody else happens to be listening and basically coming alongside the prayer and participating in that way, okay? If you'll notice some people in groups, they're actually praying their own prayer as the person's praying as well, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah? But even just that last comment, I was trying to figure that idea, the last comment, I'm curious about. Uh, my question that I was thinking about was like, well, what is the rest of the people supposed to be doing at that time? Like, if someone's praying their own prayer, is that in some sense basically saying, okay, well, I don't really... I'm not really on board with what that guy's saying, or like I just think that this is more important for me to be doing my own thing. Like, would that be fine? Because wouldn't that be basically saying like, hey, this person wants to unify and pray to God, and I'm saying no. Like, I want to do my own prayer. No, I actually don't think that that's a conflict. One thing that we've done as a bad habit is where we just say yes or mmm or whatever, and that I think does flow from that bad theology that we've looked at that says that if you guys agree in prayer, then it will be done. So that's probably one that I've noticed happens a lot that we shouldn't probably do. But you know what? Actually, in some churches, I've seen it done really well, even out loud, where, the, like, you know, grant us peace this day. And people will be like, yes, Jesus, grant us peace. They'll, like, repeat it. Uh, my practice in prayer when people are praying out loud in a group and I'm actually into the prayer is I will do that silently. I'm not going to do it out loud because it freaks out most white people. They get all, like, like wigged <laughs> out when you do that. They get all, like, kind of, they think something's going on. But... But I actually am doing that inside because it makes me an active participant in the prayer. I'm not actually praying my own prayer like different, like they're praying about this and I'm just doing my own thing. I'm actually praying along with them. Even I may be using even more words than that. Like they may say, thank you, Lord, for this day. And I'll just say something like, thank you for the creation. Thank you that we're in it. But, and they'll go on. I mean, it takes them a while. I mean, all these things are going into my head, but it's better than my mind wandering to, God, this is getting kind of long, you know, like... <laughs> Like, when's my turn? You know, that kind of, which is normal, too. I've just found that as a good way. It's just a device, but I think it's helpful that we're actually participating. Again, not for any magic qualities, but just because then we really are participating together in prayer and isn't just one person like, okay, are you done? Now it's my turn. Or, okay, if we're in a circle, do we go in order? You know, that's always a big question when you're praying in a group. Yeah, that's another question. Like, I understand the idea of corporate prayer having one person like pray for the group, but even like, having a group of smaller group of people and each person individually praying one at a time. Like, I, don't, I don't The best answer I've found on that is that nothing unifies the body more than praying together out loud and that the same spirit that is in all of us 
is coming together into a room where each person is expressing what the Spirit is prompting in them. Now, that would be true, of course, if everybody was honestly praying. You know, not just making up words and trying to look good and holy in front of everybody else. But if everybody's actually praying in that room, that there is unity in the body, because that is one of the most intimate things you could do together, is pray together out loud and really bear what is being prompted within you. I think that's the benefit. And again, it's the same diversity of things. I mean, the Spirit may prompt something in somebody else, you know, and I really do believe that. You should know that I believe that. That's why we do the group discussions in here and not just have one person speaking. I do believe that the Spirit is prompting each of us differently. Even that question was prompted by the Spirit some way. All right, anything else? Does fasting make prayer more effective? Well, that was the question. I guess it depends on what you mean by effective. Does it make God, does it twist his arm into making your prayer more likely to happen? No. Does it make it more effective in like, does it accentuate prayer? Sure. I mean, if you're fasting and you accentuate, we've covered this question in the past. It's a good way to accentuate what you're doing in front of God. It's the same thing as being persistent. doesn't mean that God is going to do it more, but he just likes us to be persistent. We see in the Old Testament model that people prayed and fasted together, especially in times of lament and to show sorrow and to show the seriousness of their prayer. So I think those things can be gained by fasting, certainly setting aside and letting your heart be transformed more, which we covered in our spiritual discipline series, but it's not going to make God answer it more because you're fasting. So I think if you're trying to use effective that way, that's probably not going to work. Three. What are the pros or cons of ritual or liturgical prayer? In the evangelical churches, there's this big deal about liturgical prayer. There's some people getting very uptight about it. Now, of course, there's some people right now that are kind of like, you know, they got the soul patch and the goatee, and they're trying to bring back like Lectio Divina and those kinds of ancient practices. But for the most part, people have clung to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, where he says, don't be like the hypocrites who stand out loud and pray certain things. Or he also says, like, don't be like those who babble, like the pagans who babble and think because of their many words that, they're, that God is going to hear them. There's also a danger that you fall into that you could just like read prayers out loud and not really feel them. Okay, that's the people who are really worried and uptight. I think that there's a good benefit to liturgical prayer. Like if you read the common book of prayer, it has beautiful prayers in it that somebody else wrote. They're not the cry of your heart, but they might echo something very real about what you're going through. Also, you could pray the Psalms. That would be liturgical prayer. Like who would fault us for reading the Psalms as a prayer? But that would be a form of liturgical prayer. There's something that's beautiful sometimes about liturgy. We shouldn't be so scared of it. Yes, it's true that some traditions have taken it to extremes, but I think we should see the beauty of some traditions. So there's some cons, I think, but for the most part, I think there's some positives that we've lost because there's a beautiful prayer language. Just like you could read the Psalms and see the beautiful language there, there's been some beautiful prayers that have been penned by some of the greats of our tradition that we don't even know about that might awaken something in our heart and go, wow, that's something that really speaks to me. Hopefully when they wrote it, it was something that the Spirit was speaking to them or something that was moving on their heart. That could be just as universal as reading a psalm. So for that question, that would be my response. Should we pray if the Lord wills it, or if the Lord will this or that, or is that just showing a lack of faith? Well, that's a good question. My response would be, first, I think the Lord gives us a model in the Lord's Prayer that says, thy will be done. Like, that's kind of one of the things where we're submitting 
that if it's your will, thy will be done. I don't think that that has to be a lack of faith. And notice I said it doesn't have to be a lack of faith. Sure, they could evidence a lack of faith if every prayer you pray go, well, if the Lord's will, like you just resign yourself to not caring. That might be a lack of faith. God wants us to be persistent and insistent. Remember that? That showed some of our faithfulness, even when we weren't getting what we wanted. But I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, if it's your will, because in the Lord's Prayer, that's part of the prayer. In fact, also in James 4.15, he's saying what we should say. James says, instead you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will do this or we will do that. James is warning against people who become overly confident in their own abilities and what they're going to do and how they're going to do it and kind of operating on their own power. And he says, no, you should say, if it's the Lord's will, this is what we will do or that. All right, it's just as far as the question goes. I don't want to dive into a whole are you seeking God's will debate, but it's just that I don't think it's necessarily a lack of faith if you say, if it's your will, because you could say it in a very strong way. Lord, if this is your will, it's going to happen. If not, I'm good with that too. But I will continue to ask you for it. I don't see that there's a lack of faith if you do it that way. If you do it the other way, you might be resigning yourself. Like, well, whatever. Number five. What about the verse that says, the prayers of a righteous man are effective? Are the prayers of a non-righteous man futile? Okay, I guess it depends on the way it's worded. Here's the thing about this. We covered this in part when we talked about things that might hinder your prayer. 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The righteous do have some sort of... Well, the the scripture tells us in James, this is the same thing if you look at James 5.16. It says something similar about the righteous. It says that the prayers of a righteous man are heard. So scripture tells us that there's something more to being righteous. At least it's to your advantage to be righteous, because if you're not, your prayers may not be heard, as we just read in 1 Peter 3.12. Also, a couple of verses that were cited by the questioner. Proverbs 15.8, The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. Proverbs 28.9, if anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. So, yes, I think the second part of this is definitely true. Are the prayers of a non-righteous man futile? Well, futile might be a little extreme, but they're definitely diminished at the very least. That may be one of the things that hinders prayer, and that's the answer, I think, to that question. Is there any point in a non-follower of Christ praying other than to decide to follow Christ? Is there any point? Is God just going to shut his ears to a non-believer and just say, unless it's one of those, I'm receiving you prayers, I don't get those messages. They go to the spam filter into the junk mail on the prayer list. Anyone? I'm just thinking what you just said in the previous question. I mean, theoretically, like there can be no good that doesn't come from God. And if someone doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them, they can't do good, so they can't be righteous. So a non-follower of Christ is not righteous. But that, as you just said, like their prayer isn't necessarily absolutely and utterly worthless, but at the very least it has much less value. And so like I wouldn't say it's necessarily there's no point of not following Christ, but Okay, Jill? I kinda of feel like 
prayers of non-Christ followers might be some of the more sincere. I don't know, this is going to sound weird, but if I were a believer, I'd be like, God, are you real? God, do you care about this or this or this? I think God definitely hears those. I think he definitely cares about us. Okay, Jeremy? I actually disagree with Phil that there could actually be a category of people who are non-believers but are righteous in their, in their actions. I mean, this is... This is clear in Scripture, too. There are, there's more than one instance of the righteous Gentile or the righteous Samaritan. Or, you know, or during Jesus' time, you've got people who, who do the right things. I mean, Paul talks about, talks about this all the time when comparing the Gentiles and the Jews and Romans. You know, he talks about the righteousness of the Gentiles um, even though they don't know the law, even though they, they don't even know they're being righteous. And in fact, they are. So... You could have a category of people who, they might not be believers, but they could be righteous. Uh, I don't know that those prayers would be any less effective or any less valuable. I guess you have to define what righteousness is. That, that's what it comes down to. And that's, that's why I think, I think we're getting off of it, because we could fall into a whole discussion of whether a non-believer can be righteous or not. But the question is just asking, can a non-believer or a non-follower of Christ, are his prayers even heard? And that's, I think, what we're trying to answer is like without worrying about whether they would be righteous or not, if you're not adopted by God with the Holy Spirit in you, now that the Spirit is in the world, will God even hear your prayers? Yeah. Like, I got a friend that lives down the street, and like, she believes that there's a God, you know, she doesn't know about like which religion she's going to go with, but she prays all the time. I don't think he doesn't hear. And, and by the way, here is not just that God is deaf or not deaf. I mean, it, I think what the questioner is asking is, would, they, would he answer the prayer? Not that he's not going to hear it, but I mean, you think that he could answer the prayer. Okay, let me address it from Scripture. For example, we know that Jesus also says in Matthew 5, and I think the verse is 45, Matthew 5, 45, that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, that doesn't mean that he's necessarily answering prayer, you could say, no, that just means he's being good to all people. Right. I mean, think of how many times we've talked about unprayed blessings. When people don't even pray and God still blesses them. So I think God is probably in the business of hearing prayers. He may even respond. I'm not going to say it's the same as if you're a Christian. I don't know. It seems that there's evidence that if you were righteous or if you were praying in the Spirit, or you understood the prompting of the Spirit, that that might aid your prayer, and it might hinder you that you don't know God, but I can't say that it would cause him not to hear it. All right, let's keep going, man. We might actually make it. Do we need to confess our sins before God hears our prayers, or does sin just stop us from praying? I think both. I think we should confess our sins. We have that in the Lord's Prayer in the model. Forgive us our debts is one of the things we're supposed to pray. There's numerous passages about forgiveness, all right? And there's also the passage which is related, and I say related, but it's the one where we hear that if you are in the process of leaving, like in the process of making your sacrifice, and you remember that someone has something against you, you should leave your sacrifice on the altar and go and be reconciled. Now, we don't have that system anymore of sacrifices and altars, but it's very similar that when we approach God in that way, and we remember that there are things that are in our life, that's part of the Lord's Prayer as well. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. But 
I also think the second part of the question is also true. It can hinder us from prayer. I think we all know that from experience. I don't even think we need to really go into that too much. When we're in a place of sin and our life is a mess, it's difficult to approach God. It's just one of the things that's difficult. Does that mean you should stay away from God in times like that? No. But we just do. It's just a reality of who we are. Sometimes in our sin, we're ashamed of what we've done and we stay away from God. Sometimes in our sin, we become callous to what's going on. We don't even want to speak to God. So I think it's both, but I think confessing our sins is something we should do all the time. And that's part of the discipline of confession that we were talking about earlier in our spiritual discipline series. At what point do we know that God's answer is no as opposed to the fact that we have not been persistent enough? Well, we know that we're supposed to be persistent and insistent in prayer, but sometimes the circumstances are just going to tell you that's the case. The easiest one I could think of is you're praying for somebody to be healed and they pass away. I think you can safely get the answer is no. I don't mean to be flippant about that. That's exactly what happened with David when he was praying for his son to be spared. He prayed, he fasted, he spent night and day before the Lord asking for his son to be spared. He was very persistent in prayer. When the son died, he got up, he put on fresh clothes, he bathed, and he said, okay, the Lord's will is done. Now, in other circumstances, I'll tell you that if it's not that obvious, you may never know. Philip? I mean, theoretically, shouldn't we just pray, God, raise this person from the dead? Because when you say, like, well, obviously his answer is no at that point, how do we know? Like, maybe God wants to raise someone else from the dead. Like, I don't see there's any point where we can say, well, obviously the answer is no. Like, I mean, like, he has raised you from the dead. It's not like it's an unheard of, like, precedent. Like, it's happened before, so... Yeah, but I don't know if you mean that in practice, though. <laughs> I mean, when's the last time you prayed for, you know, a dead relative to be raised? You know? I don't know that there's ever a place where we'll know for sure, all right? I think the circumstances in that case would tell us the answer is most likely no. Nothing prevents us from continuing to pray, even for them to be raised from the dead. Most of us don't have that problem. Most of us are not in a place where we're praying so much that the bummer is that they died and now we don't know what to do with our time. Most of us are in a place where we haven't even prayed more than twice for the same thing. I think the place that I'm trying to move us to with this question is, We should be persistent, but there is also a place of surrender. And that's where I think is a very important concept that we also have to take on in prayer is the prayer to surrender and say, okay, and that's part of it's your will. You know, I mean, theoretically, Jesus could have just kept praying all night long that God would change his mind all the way up until the cross. But at some point, he prayed, he was insistent, he made his heart, and he said, you know what, I'm surrendering to your will. We've pointed out, Jesus is a different story. He probably had a better understanding of God's will than we ever will, and that makes it a unique case. But if we get a clue, like the person has died after we've prayed for a long, long period of time, there's probably more likely to not say, all right, you know what, I'm going to surrender to that. Does that mean you're giving up? I don't think so in that case, right? But that's an easier case than other things. Like some people who I've known who've prayed for years and years and years to meet somebody that they're going to marry. And you might say, well, at some point, where do you cut it off? Just go, hey, I'm 45, it's over. I'm 50, I'm 70. Like, where do you go? Like, it's over, right? When do you you get the answer is no. That's more sensitive for some people, I'm sure. But that's the good news about God giving us these examples of 
be persistent. And I like it when you're persistent. Like he's almost encouraging that. Yeah, I would say it was almost more, it's not so much a definite no, but it is the surrender part that comes to it. Because I think, kind of as Phil said, if, you, if you're saying, I want to pray for this person to be raised from the dead, well, where does that not become like almost a sincere prayer, but your will of what you want and not of what is supposed to happen? So I think I second that with the surrender. Maybe it's a better word than just a no. And Paul modeled surrender for us when he said, I prayed for this thorn to be removed, right? He prayed that prayer several times, but not his whole life. And at some point, he came to a place of surrender and said, okay, your grace is sufficient for me. I come to that point of surrender. Some of us might say, come on, man, you weren't persistent enough. You should have kept going with that. So like everything in this group, if you know my favorite word, it's tension. You're going to hold that between a person who prayed three times for something to be removed and then surrender to the Lord versus somebody else who would pray almost their whole life for something and would be rewarded for being persistent. It's somewhere in between those two. And if you're looking for a definitive answer like a certain number of times, then you're going to sound like Peter, like, Lord, how many times do I forgive the guy? Just seven times? Like, and Jesus gives him a ridiculous answer. Like most things when we ask questions, it's going to be like, here's your bookends. Don't be here too much and don't be here too much. Hold it in tension. But I think the, que- the question is, at what point do we know God's answer is no? I would say for most things, you'll never know what God's absolute answer is unless the circumstances are crystal clear. And like Philip pointed out, even at death, you might still have a chance. What's the difference between being persistent and grumbling? How far is too far before God goes, that's it, I've had enough of you? In Exodus, we have an example of people who were grumbling. They were grumbling. They were constantly like, why, Lord, did you bring us out here to die? Why, Lord, do we have nothing to eat? Why do we have nothing to drink? We might as well have just been slaves back in Egypt. It would have been better for us. And the Lord called that grumbling. He was very angry with them at times. In fact, the one plague he sent to them was when they were grumbling that they had nothing to eat. He made them eat so much quail that it was like bursting out of their, like, body, basically. He was just so angry. He sent them so much food in response to their grumbling about, we're so sick and tired of this manna. That's all we eat is manna, manna. What's the difference between grumbling and persistence? Well, I think it's the attitude. Grumbling has these kinds of attitudes in them that I was able to identify from reading different people talking about the Israelites' grumblings. Let me give you a couple and tell you, if you know the story, maybe these sound familiar. They were discontent. They were ungrateful. They were actually rebellious. God was leading them somewhere, and they were refusing to follow. They wanted to go back to slavery when he had led them out. They were unfaithful, not believing that God was sufficient. They were disobedient to the direct instructions that God was giving them. In fact, the thing that makes their case so unique that we probably won't have to worry about it is God was literally leading them around in a pillar, a cloud, And they could see that God was in their presence all the time. And they were still grumbling and still discontent and rebelling against God. I don't think we're going to have that problem in our prayers when it's something we earnestly desire and we're bringing it before the Lord over and over and over until we get to the point where we start shaking our fist at God. Even then in anger, you might be okay. But I think when we get to that point where we stop believing that God will do anything, hear anything, I think that may be the place we're getting closer, and I still don't think we'd be at the place the Israelites were. 
So I think you've got a lot of leeway before you get to completely turning your back on God in a way and starting to invoke that. I think we have a very, very, very patient God who commands us to be persistent, so I don't think you've got much to worry about. If the purpose of prayer is to get to know God's character, wouldn't reading the Bible be more effective? Well, it depends on how you want to get to know him. I mean, there is at some point, even though we've overemphasized this in the West, a personal relationship between you and God in some way. It's probably as part of a larger body known as the church. But there is something personal about the relationship. He is a living God, you are a living person. We just talked earlier about the scripture speaking to us, but I think at the same time, yes, I think we have a relationship that we should participate in. And there are certain aspects of God's character we may only discover in the relationship. Some of those characteristics may be his saving grace. Some of those characteristics may be the way he saves you personally out of a circumstance. Some of those may be the suffering that you go through that produces wisdom. And the experiences that you have and those you can only learn as you wrestle with God. There are some lessons I've read many times in Scripture, but I never quite understood until I wrestled with God. And they made so much more sense. And one of them, by the way, is surrender. Like I've read about it, I understand it in theory, but until I had to give things up and go through very painful things in my life, did I start to understand, I say start, to understand the concept of surrender. And I had to wrestle with God to finally give some things up until I realized what it really meant. Then when I went back and read his word, it made a lot more sense. So I think there are aspects of his character you can know. And yes, it was in the midst of prayer that I finally gave certain things up and recognized, okay, I think I finally understand what that concept is all about. Why should we call others to pray if we're sick and not just pray for ourselves? Well, because James says so. (laughs) That's what it says in James. But James is saying something in context. He's making an assumption, which I don't believe is totally true. I don't want to disagree with the Bible, but he's making this assumption that elders are righteous and they're going to come lay hands on you and you'll be better like healed. As an elder, I don't know that that's true. (laughs) I don't know that I have any more ability or anything else than anyone else. So when I read that, I go, hmm, they must be talking about somebody else. But the other reason is, again, it goes back to the idea of corporate prayer. There is numerous verses in Scripture where we're commanded to lay hands on other people. So there's something to the intercession of having other people come and do it. Are the elders supposed to be more righteous? Well, James makes that assumption. That's what he connects those two things when he says, let the elders come and lay hands. And then a few lines down, he says, because the prayers of a righteous person are effective, he's making that link. So if you believe that the people you're calling are righteous people, Maybe it will work. Do you want to make a comment? Yeah, I was just going to say, sometimes like when we have, if we're having trouble with our own prayer life too, it's like, you know, at least we know that someone's getting into, getting into God, you know? Like, if you ask other people to pray, like if you're having trouble talking to them to yourself, you know, and you ask people to pray for you, like, like you were saying, if they are more righteous or maybe it's more effective or just, just having them get it to God if, if you can't, you know? I wouldn't say it's just that because I think Timothy... Uh, you know, the letter to Timothy actually corroborates that in the sense that to become an elder, first of all, there are, there are issues of character and things that, that if they don't meet that, then they shouldn't be an elder at your church, you know? And so there is a sense that, yeah, the elders of our church should be in right relation, theoretically, in right relationship with God, or else we probably have a problem, you know, as, as, as far as establishing, you know, leadership structure and stuff. Okay, look, the question comes from James 5, verse 13, 
is any one of you in trouble, he should pray. And then it further on says, uh, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. All right, And let me link it again. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So the connection he's making between that and a few verses down, that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, like I said, seems to have the assumption that the people who come and pray and lay hands are these types of righteous people. There's, a, there's that kind of assumption in it. And if that's true, then I think that's why we would call somebody else to pray for us. But the one thing I want to be clear is, the rest of the question is saying, why wouldn't we just pray for ourselves? Nothing precludes us from praying for ourselves in that situation. All right? And I don't think that this one verse is going to be used as a prescription to say that these people have just special healing powers that you shouldn't pray, you should call in those people, because your prayer is not going to work and theirs will. I just think that if it's true that the prayers of a righteous person are effective, then you probably want everybody who's effective praying over you. And again, not for magic purposes, but the more that we're together and the more that we're praying, the more we're exhibiting the persistent heart that God seems to enjoy. AJ. At least for me personally, I know that when I've asked people to pray for me, it's usually been for stuff that's been hard for me to deal with. And I think that uh, I do it more as a recognition of I need help, not as a, I think that spiritually you're, you know, you're up here and I'm down here and I'm looking up to you. And that as brothers and sisters that we're called to do that for each other. Say, hey, you know what, then I'm here and I'll, I'll pray for you, you know. Okay. Okay. Eleven, if prayer is the way God's people petition him to act, if his people don't pray, does he not act? I think God is acting all the time. But God does like to be asked. We started with that kind of idea from the very beginning. He wrestles with us. God is always acting. But there's this thing you have to remember, which is God also enjoys acting through us. God could do a lot of things without us, but he gives us a lot of the commandments. Remember, clothing, feeding, visiting, loving, caring, preaching the word. All those are in our hands for some reason. He loves to use us and partner with us. So that means there is a connection between prayer and us acting. God is still going to act. We're not going to thwart God. We're not going to frustrate his purposes. But in some way, we are petitioning them to act, and I would think most of the response when we're petitioning God to act is to find a way to work through us to actually get it done. So a lot of people say when you come to petition God in prayer for him to act, his response, and this is, again, it's a, it's a saying, so don't take it as, as there's a verse that says this, his response most of the time is, all right, why don't you get that done? Or let's raise up some people to do that because God does like to work through us. Number 12, what does it mean to pray in the spirit? That's something we banter around a lot. I don't know that any of us have ever really looked through it. There are three verses that deal with praying in the spirit. I'll just tell you what they are if you want to look them up. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, Ephesians 6, 18, and Jude 20. Praying in the spirit is not praying in tongues, which we often confuse it as. The best translation of praying the Spirit is praying with the assistance of, praying under the influence of, with the help of, by means of, in connection to the Spirit. If the Spirit really resides in us, this goes back to that idea of the Spirit prompting us. We looked at this verse last week, Romans 8.26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself 
intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Praying in the Spirit is praying with the Spirit that is inside of us, that dwells us. When we don't even know how to pray or to pray for it. So that's kind of what it means. If you look at those verses, you'll get that same kind of context that I cited. Yeah. Uh, maybe I missed it. I was like, how do we do it? Then? You know, the question is, I'm sorry, the answer to how do we do it is we are doing it. We are doing it because the Spirit is kind of acting as one level of filter. Like even when we don't even know what to pray for, even though we're not kind of praying the right thing, Romans is telling us the Spirit is already interceding and interpreting those things and praying what we really feel we should be praying. So as I looked at that and I thought about that second question, like, well, how then do we invoke that? I, it seems like the best answer is it's already going on. It's like all the time? Or is there a time where we're not praying in the Spirit? Let me add Morgan to jump in and I'll give you my thought. That's where I would invoke our, our, the spiritual disciplines. You know, that's where things like silence and meditation may come in at least to sit there and say, instead of just sitting and blurting everything, because you know, like I get that sense too, sometimes we're just, we're just blurting where it's like, hold up, slow down and center yourself, and that might at least put us in the direct, being more in tune with the Spirit, that's, that's my personal thought. And I think there's been a dichotomy created among some churches, like praying in the Spirit is not the same as praying in the flesh. You know, there's that, that thing. I think that's a, mis, a little bit of a misunderstanding of, like we're choosing that we will partner with the Holy Spirit, and we're, then we're going to be carnal and flesh-like and all that stuff. And I don't even think it's the right use, use of the word flesh when they make that comparison. I think it's true that we could pray for the wrong purposes. We could pray with the wrong motivation. So I think there are ways that we're not praying in the Spirit. But I also think that the best way to pray in the Spirit is not like we're going to do some magical thing again or some formulaic thing. It's going to be to try to be in tune with the Spirit, like Morgan was saying about the more that we are transformed in our heart through disciplines, through time with God, the more that our Spirit should understand how to be in the Spirit in prayer. And that's why I like this verse in Romans, because we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So it gives me comfort to think that even when we don't even know what we're doing, the Spirit is still at work, and we may be praying in the Spirit, whether we actually know it or not. All right. Let me close if you just give me three minutes with this. You know, we dissected prayer in this series like, like, like mice in a laboratory. And that was kind of intentional because we did another series on prayer that was much more spiritual based. We were working on going through the Lord's Prayer. But after doing our spiritual discipline series this time, we had so many questions about things about prayer. There's some loose ends that I'd like to tie up that I can't. One of them Jeremy pointed out last week afterwards when we were talking that I can't tie this loose end up. When we started this series, we were talking about what do we say to people who don't believe about prayer? What do we say to people who are outside the faith about prayer? Is there anything we could offer them? I want to tie that up, but I can't. And here's why I don't think I can. Because people outside of the faith are relying on short snippets of what they think prayer is. As you saw in the video that we analyzed, they're relying on short snippets of things that are taken a little bit out of context, sometimes a lot out of context. And why are they doing that? Because we're giving it to them like that. Because we're using pithy statements and bumper sticker slogans. So what was the value of this series? 
if for nothing else it was to show that there's a lot more depth that we need to go into an understanding of what prayer is. That simple statements that we make, even ones that I've made, like talk to God and he'll talk back to you, could trip so many people up until we went through them week after week and peeled them off, I know, like layers on an onion. And some of us are like, ah, oh, that makes prayer seem so sterile, so, so much like a subject in a laboratory experiment. But I feel like we had to at least get down to a correct understanding on some of these issues. I don't want us to be contributing to the problem. In fact, I'd like us now to be more equipped to help deal with that problem. Because so many of the people outside the church don't know anything about prayer or think that God is not really there because the statements we give them, they use to show that they just don't add up. That's a loose end that I think our group will have to keep trying to tie every time we try to find theology or some belief or some understanding that we've reduced to simplicity or oversimplified so that it doesn't make sense anymore or give someone an excuse to walk away from God. That's the same as people in the church who've walked away already for the same reason. Okay, But what about us? Now that we've dissected it to death, what do we do with prayer? What are you supposed to pray for? What's this time spent in prayer if you get all these things right? And here's kind of some things I would suggest to you. The Lord's Prayer gives us this model again of what we're supposed to pray for. I'm just going to read a couple to you. You should praise God. Pray for his holiness. You can just praise him and adore him for who he is. That's one thing that prayer is, if nothing else. It's not just a petition, although we focus so much of our time about petitioning God. But prayer in the end is really, it could be nothing more. You could spend a whole day, you could spend a whole week, a whole month doing nothing but every day just praising God for his holiness. Thanksgiving for all things. That could be the subject of prayer. Exclusively, if you felt like that was what you needed to do, is enter into a season of prayer where you do nothing but thanksgiving, even for hardship. Not just praise for the great things that are going on, but even thanksgiving and hardship. Third one, surrender. We started to use that word tonight and bring it out. Surrender to the will of the Father. You could spend time wrestling in prayer with God to do nothing more than come to the place where you say, okay, not my will, but yours or I give this up to you, or Lord, I know you could do anything. This could not be happening if you wanted it. You could just, in tomorrow, it could be gone, but it's happening for some reason. You may be just allowing it. You may be behind it. I surrender. I surrender to you. That may be the most honest prayer you ever pray. Confession and repentance, where you come before the Lord and confess sin, ask for forgiveness, Even though we have that assurance, he still says, pray for forgiveness. Forgive me my debts. And then pray for the strength to repent and to actually find a way to change. There's so many addictions that hold our lives. There's so many patterns that we've built into our lives that are hard to break free from. Ask for God's help in repentance to change. Spend time in those disciplines to find your heart changing. Remember, God is the one that does the true change in our heart. You can pray for that. Change my heart, O oh God. You can pray that prayer over and over. Yes, it includes petition, which is where most of us go right away. For ourselves and for others, there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus tells us in his model prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And we've covered all the aspects of petition over and over in our series. So that one shouldn't be a surprise. 
communion with God, just spending time in his presence, always, constantly aware. Some of my prayer time with God involves me driving, looking out the windshield, and just imagining that he's just enveloping everything around me. Just silence, just like think about that. That I'm like driving and he can see me driving. You know, and it's like he's just all around. And I'm just thinking about that. I don't know. Sometimes it leads my mind in strange places. And sometimes there's really communion going on there. Communion may involve communication. It may involve prompting. It may involve some of those more rare forms. It may involve bringing to mind a verse. But communion can just be done on its own, just spending time. And my last comment is prayer, if it does nothing else, will bring you some perspective. Philip Yancey, who we use a lot of his book at the beginning of our series, is a mountain climber part-time as a hobby. And he talks about liking to climb mountains and sitting very, very high up and looking down and seeing all the people and seeing all the cars very, very small from where he climbs. And just thinking, I wonder what it must be like to be from God's perspective, just watching all this life. Just thinking about one person in their car, thinking of how important they think their life is and how important their task list is for that day and how important their worries are. But when you're up there on that mountain, it just seems like there's like millions of others just like them. What makes them so important? That's the beauty of our God, by the way, is that each of us is important despite all those things. But sometimes prayer pulls us back into that perspective. Sometimes just wrestling with God and seeing things the way he sees the world or saying, Lord, let me see those things from your eyes. Give me some perspective on where I am and how I am. It gets you out of yourself into what you're supposed to do. Part of that perspective, by the way, is action. When we petition the Lord to act because we are the body of Christ, hands and feet in this world, tangibly his presence, when we're petitioning him to act, especially on behalf of others, I think oftentimes the Lord is going to raise us and the rest of the people in the body to act. I hope that we can listen and gain his perspective in doing that. Okay? So there's a lot of things we can do in prayer. I'm sorry that we dissected some of the series so much into these questions that we might have lost the beauty and the mystery of what it is. That's part of our earlier series. Go back and listen to that. But at least I hope we're able to correct some of the ideas that we have been wrongly contributing to the dialogue that allows other people to take what we say and use it as a reason that God can't exist. Let's do this. Let's close in corporate prayer together. Lord Jesus, everything we have belongs to you. Even the time that we spent tonight is yours all of the time that we spent in this series and all of the time that we spent getting ready for it. Lord, you promise us in Isaiah that that you always use your word to accomplish something. Take all of this time that we invested in spending here. Use it for something greater than we can imagine that's going to help other people to come closer to you Lord, I've prayed before and I'll pray again. Don't let all of this information just be for our heads. Change our heart from the inside, Lord. We plead with you today to change our heart, to make us want to spend more time with you, to be more expectant that we'll hear from you, 
But more importantly, that when we come to you, Lord, that you will change our perspective and show us that there is a whole world of things around us that we can get involved in that are your purposes. So if we stewarded this time correctly, Lord, it will produce great return. Please, Lord, don't let it be in vain. I pray all this in your name. Amen.